And we're back here listening to the Ulster Rugby Roundup, the Belfast Telegraph's one-stop shop for all things Ulster Rugby. I'm Adam McKendry, delighted to say I've been rejoined this week by Jonathan Bradley after another week off for you. How was it? It was okay. It was very busy, moving house. Um, still surrounded by more boxes than I realised that I even owned, but here we are. <laughs> Funny, whenever you're going through the same thing, because uh, I'm in the process of moving house as well, you suddenly realise how much stuff that you actually need to move and it's always an extra six or seven boxes than you think it's going to take. Yeah, well, unfortunately, it might take three or four more days than I thought it was going to take, which was my <laughs> issue. But... You're also saying that you didn't have internet for a while, which is a journalist's worst nightmare. Yeah, well, that was why I actually had to book the book off because I just didn't have any... <laughs> I had no way of filing copy, which was... Uh the main drawback for uh, for a week of work so no way of zooming into the Ulster rugby roundup last week you were very ably replaced by Neve Jones I must say once again I'm replaced by a far far superior contributor <laughs> it, uh, it would be enough to give anyone a complex that uh, whenever whenever I go away the product improves dramatically it's in- no, 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 I don't say that no we we all value your contributions greatly it's just <laughs> that uh, Whenever you have the Ireland woman starting hooker on, it's uh, it's quite hard to live up to that kind of calibre. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we are here to talk about events at Ravenhill over the weekend. Ulster getting the business done whenever they needed to for a home quarterfinal in the United Rugby Championship. 24-21, they won against the Sharks. Ulster this season so far, they haven't really had any experience of getting the job done whenever their backs were against the wall in terms of they lost the Toulouse game. They lost that Munster game recently. But to get this one must be a massive confidence boost going into the playoffs and making sure that they're back at Ravenhill for that quarterfinal. Well, I think they're back, to be fair, I think their backs were very much against the wall against Edinburgh because I think we were looking at that game having lost four or five, thinking that uh, if they had have lost five of six, there would have been serious, serious trouble. Now, yeah, I suppose, yes, you can make the point that um, they'd made a rod for their own back in many regards by losing the Munster at home the week before. But I think that was very much a game that I would look at as saying that had the potential to be season-defining if they had have lost it. So, I would, I, you know, especially with no other team having won there this season, I think you have to, give them, have to give them credit for that. But in terms of getting the job done when they needed to, I don't know what you think, Adam. I actually, and this is, this is maybe more on me than reflective of Ulster. I actually thought it would be more, much more straightforward than it was. Um, I didn't think the South African teams having obviously gone home and coming back here would travel. But if you look across all the games this weekend, it was very much a continuation of what we've seen from them on home soil coming back over here. So I thought that was really interesting. Potentially for the playoffs, I know obviously the Stormers will be at home in the quarters and the Bulls and Sharks will be playing each other in South Africa, but it does bear watching down the track and even moving into next season if we think that uh, the South African sides have cracked some sort of code in terms of travel that they haven't managed earlier in the season. And obviously, I know we'll go on to talk about this later, but um, Ulster do have this slight propensity this season to fade in some matches and to 
probably more worrying concede points in gluts uh, that hasn't cost them yet. But, uh, you know, I wrote about it uh, for the website yesterday. When you look back at that Claremont game, when you look back at the first leg in Toulouse, which I understand ultimately did cost them in the second leg, but in terms of winning game or losing games that they look like they've won, this was another one where you were sort of sat there with uh, five minutes to go thinking to yourself, this seemed wholly comfortable a mere 10 minutes ago. And uh, now, now they might actually lose the game. So Ulster are doing a real number on us as journalists in that we love to have our match reports written quite early and having no late drama to ruin that. And at least I've got to say maybe four or five occasions this season, there have been dramatic rewrites in the last 10 minutes of Ulster games. So uh, I think, you know, if you think about the Claremont game that I mentioned there, they had that game sewn up and then out of nothing, you were having to, you know, pull out reams of copy to fit other things in. The Toulouse game obviously remained a fine victory, but one that would have um, been a lot more comfortable had it been a 13-point win than a um, than a six-point win going into that second leg. And even in terms of just the journalism <laughs> aspect of the of, of match reports, that Edinburgh game was uh, was possibly the worst of the bunch because so much was riding on the result, and Edinburgh were an inch away from scoring and changing really changing the dynamic of the rest of Ulster season from that point out. So <laughs> the Sharks game, if they'd lost that one, then it would have changed the context of their season because they would they'd have been away in South Africa, which completely changes your report. So. Yeah, <laughs> just get that for the second uh, or for the for the semi-final perspectively now rather than the quarterfinal <laughs> I, I, I don't want to sound biased or anything but you know as, as a journalist I, I would just like to ask Dan McFarland and his team to please make the, your results a bit safer earlier in games and then hold on to that safety because like even if it had just been Marius Lowe's try you can easily tack on on the end Marius Lowe scored a consolation try you can just throw that on the end whenever two scores happen and it makes it a one score game you have to rewrite something else so that's my rant done for the week um, Dan McFarland is probably the only person whose uh, blood pressure is more negatively affected by this than uh, than those of us in the press box but I mean all, like all joking aside it it will cost them if they continue to have these lapses late in matches. And it can be, you know, you can look at it. Is it a point of focus? Is it a point of the bench impact not being where it needs to be across the board? Because yeah, we all know in modern rugby, when you're replacing more players than you're not in using eight substitutes, if you don't have 23 players, of the same standing, then you're going to be in trouble. So it could be that they come and look at this in the close season and think, is this an issue of squad depth rather than is, uh, you know, rather than looking at it as an anomaly that happens late in matches. But I would sort of think, you know, I think back to even to that Edinburgh semi-final, like um, imagine how stung Edinburgh were by that for the next six months, having thrown away a lead like that to lose a knockout game. And then stewing over it all summer, like Ulster will be in danger of that if they let this happen again. Because I know that you can say they have <laughs> let it happen against good teams this season and still managed to come out in the right result. But you can't keep liver- living this dangerously. And again, I wrote about this for the website yesterday. Like it's hard enough to win a rugby game once. Do not put yourself in the position where you have to win it twice. Your plug for your 
piece on the website you can check that out on belfasttelegraph.co.uk forward slash sport i suppose coming off the back of what you were saying there johnny it's probably a good time to bring in a question from donal o'reilly uh, Ulster have been an exciting team to watch this year with a tri-reel packed full of flair and skill. That said, early on, Dan McFarland was worried about our third quarters and more recently, it has been our last 10 to 15 minutes. Have Ulster put in an 80-minute performance yet? And if not, why not? And I was racking my brain trying to think back and trying to think if Ulster have put in an 80-minute performance this year. And I think we should probably dispel a little bit of a myth. I don't think any team ever puts in an 80-minute performance. Like, even whenever you it's look at some of that, actually, because I don't know whether you saw those Stuart Lancaster quotes this morning from his press or yesterday. He basically said that very thing. You know, nobody ever puts in a 10 out of 10 performance, but you need to get it to 8 out of 10, 9 out of 10. And like, it's basically exactly what you said there. Nobody hits peak level and stays there for, for 80 minutes. I would put forward the Leinster game, the Leinster away. They were very good start to finish in that game. You could point to the fact that they didn't score the points that their performance in the first half warranted, still obviously requiring the intercept the win later on. But I think that in terms of getting up to a, getting up to a high pitch early and staying there for the vast majority of the game is the one that I would probably think back on. I'm sort of doing my uh, I'm doing my wrap up of the Pro 14 or the ERC regular <laughs> season today. So I have these things in my head of you know performance of the season, uh, player of the season, so on and so forth. So um yeah, that's why that's why I have looked at that Leinster performance already today. But even in that Leinster game, you remember, uh, as Donal mentions in his question, the, fir- the third quarter of that game, Ulster were under the cosh for quite a long time. They weren't putting in the same level they put in for the first half and then the final 20 minutes. So mm. even in that game, which is considered one of their best performances of the season, they had that dip where they just had to sort of cling on and ride it out. And, you know, you look at the Claremont game where they had to ride it out, even the game in Claremont, sort of that third quarter was the one that really brought Claremont back into the game again. So Ulster are a team that do sort of have periods where they really dominate games and periods of the game where they are clinging on a bit. As we say, I don't think you can have an 80-minute performance. And I think if you're asking a team to go out and put in an 80-minute performance, it's a bit too much I think the bigger issue for Ulster is whenever they are having sort of those fallow periods in games that they need to control it a bit better because we saw even on Friday night against the Sharks right at the very end there Billy Burns puts a kick into the corner and he puts the Sharks five meters out with I think it was only about 90 seconds left on the clock that's perfect game management but everything after that was not perfect game management because they managed to let the Sharks go from five metres from their own line to scoring under the posts to make it a one-score game again. Like it's, it's those little areas that they need to sharpen up where they're maybe holding on a bit, but they have to, they just have to be able to manage it a little better so that they're not clinging on for dear life, defending on their own line kind of thing, where it's more that, they're maybe just not clicking an attack, but they're still holding their own defensively. That That's the kind of difference that I think Ulster have to make in those periods of the game. I think, it, I mean, it's an interesting question. I'd be interested to know what you think about it in terms of why do you think we've seen this shift from the third quarter? Because it felt like we were talking about the third quarter for the first three years, four years. So we did this podcast. We were talking about the third quarter and why the third quarter was producing this lull. And to me, that has to be an issue of focus coming out after halftime and halftime breaks your focus as it were and you don't switch back into it 
in the way that you uh, need to at the start of the second half. For me, I do wonder uh, in terms of finishing games this season, whether it is, as I mentioned before, an issue of the bench not providing the impact that it needs to in terms of replacing the starters like for like, or if it's an issue of experience. Like I know an awful lot of Ulster players sort of bristle at this whenever we talk about it, of them being a young team, but there is a level of experience required in what you talked about there and in game management to close out these games and that little bit of canniness, a little bit of little bit of noose every so often just to uh, not allow the opposition back into it whenever there's a sort of crack in the doorway, not allowing them to open it and uh, burst through, I guess, especially in terms of the big games because as much as we all, and especially on this podcast, look at Ulster in detail week to week to week every time they're playing, in reality, the big games come around seven or eight times a year. Like I, I remember Darren Cave was always really interested in talking about this, talking about defence and how you, you become as good a defender he was, as he was. And it was like, well, to be honest, by the time I'm my age, and at this point he could have been 29, 30, but he was like, I've seen every picture that I see across a game thousands of times, but the only way to do that is to be in those positions. So it's kind of like that, but like I say, the concern is that it's going to cost them in a big knockout game, whether it be against Monster, whether it be potentially against the Stormers or Ember, or in a final. And that's the kind of thing that I think will really stick with the squad. Because if you if you can win the game, as I say, or put yourself in a winning position in a knockout game, or potentially even a game with silverware on the line, to let that slip and then to still have people talk about this right going back to 2006 would be really really hard to deal with and to get over I think we'll talk about the knockouts just in a little moment because I feel like we've been a little bit too negative about a Sharks game which Ulster did actually play very well in for 75 minutes whenever you look at that performance Johnny for for the first 75 minutes and, and you mentioned it earlier on where you said that you were you thought it would be a bit more straightforward I'll just add what, what I think on that. I think the South Africans have definitely adapted a lot quicker than certainly the Cheetahs and the Kings did whenever they first came into the, the Pro 14, as it was then. And I think that's, that's partly down to the quality of the players for a start. But I think there's probably also a realisation that they had to adapt pretty quickly to playing away. Otherwise, they weren't going to actually win anything. Uh, but at the same time, I was very impressed with how Ulster adapted very quickly to what the Sharks were showing. The Sharks played a very narrow defensive line. And Dan said this in in his post-match quotes. He he mentioned the fact that they spotted that in their pre-game analysis. So what Ulster did was they forced them even narrower by using Stuart McCluskey. And McCluskey, I thought, was absolutely outstanding. He was my man of the match, but Nick Timoney was a very, very close second. But they, they used McCluskey so well to keep the Sharks even narrower and that opened up the gaps outside like they could have had two or three more tries in that first half very easily if passes had just gone to hand or if the handling was just a little better and for me that's probably the biggest takeaway that I'm having from this game is the fact that Ulster played for the first 75 minutes they played that game tactically spot on in my opinion. One thing that I would focus on as well Without the ball would have been the breakdown work and forcing turnovers because that was, 
had a huge bearing on the game, both, you know, you think back to the Henderson rip, which got Ulster on the board, or even, you know, Nick Timoney turned over before that, that quelled the the first Sharks attack. Like, I think um, that was really good to see because we've seen so many games in recent weeks, it feels like more than ever, where the breakdown, even more so than the set piece or the kicking battle, where the breakdown is becoming, for me anyway, the key battle, the key battleground. And I think to go far in this competition, Ulster are going to need the likes of Nick Timoney, the likes of Marcus Ray getting in there, forcing those jackal turnovers. And I thought they were really, really effective at doing that at very key moments on uh, on Friday night as well. There's something about picking a turnover at a key moment that just, it, it really swings momentum your way more than a big tackle or a line-out seal or something like that. It's It's almost like that double whammy of not only are we getting the ball back we're going to be able to kick it down into your territory as well and well, just, I mean you see the way that it lifts the crowd and even mm-hmm. especially now more so than say even five years ago the way it lifts the team it's like that Tim anyone more talked about like the first thing that you could see in here was Marcus Ray coming in celebrating that turnover and then as I say especially when you're at home really really lifts the crowd and 100%, as you say, flips the pitch because, you know, Ulster were in their own, if not in their own 22, then deep in their own territory for uh, for that one instance. And then they're up the other end. So, And then even even more so, I think, for Timoney, it's a massive boost because he's one of those guys that you were thinking had maybe dropped off form a little bit. And he himself said that after the game. He felt like his form hadn't quite lived up to the to the hype over the past few weeks and he was a bit quiet against Toulouse uh, in both legs but you know he, he comes back I think it was 31 tackles against Edinburgh which is absolutely incredible even for the last ditch stand that Ulster had on their own line at the end mm-hmm. but to put in that kind of performance and then to have those turnovers against the Sharks those are the kind of games that you want guys having going into the knockouts you want them having those momentum games and I think he's he's the kind of guy who really lives off confidence. So those two performances are going to be massive, especially whenever Ulster are going to need him. As, as you say, going up against the back row that is going to have uh, potentially Peter O'Mahony and Jack O'Donoghue both in it and Alex Kandelan for, for Munster. And then if you look even further down the line, we're expecting that Ulster are probably going to have to beat Leinster in order to, if they want to win the URC, you're going up against one of the best open sides in the world in Josh van der Fleer. So, Timoney's going to be essential, so it's good to see him having a game like that. I think especially, as you say, those were eye-catching quotes in these. Timoney's always very open, very honest mm. um, speaker, very interesting speaker. It was interesting to hear him how much he said that he felt like he needed that break because I know even for us already, it's like, oh, geez, we could really do with the game. Like all these, It feels like the season's very stop-start now, which is was always going to be the case with the calendar being the way it was, but... Um, there was that real run sort of coming out of November where it was like big derbies, European games, more European games, more derbies. And even the other games felt big. Like, you know, I referenced, I suppose, that Edinburgh one where it did just seem like week after week after week, there was a massive, a massive game to negotiate. And it sounded from what Nick was saying and maybe he was even more maybe a bit more drained than he'd even realized at the time when you're just, when you're having to continually hit that P 
pitch because no, like no disrespect to some of the opposition that Ulster played in the ERC this year, but just the way that the fixtures fell, it really did feel like an awful lot of their more straightforward games came in the first month of the season. And obviously, the knock-on of that is that uh, you still have to play. You know, you still have to play everyone. So Ulster ended up playing. You know, even I would think back to that Scarlets game. You know, Scarlets are going pretty well at that time, and that game in the middle of that sort of 10-week block was sort of seen as, not the, not the down week, but it was like, certainly in terms of the significance of the fixtures that were around it, that was the outlier. But, you know, they were playing well at that time. Obviously, they tailed away at the end. But well, don't, don't forget about the COVID impact as well, because yeah, of course. you've got the games that were rescheduled during the Six Nations that you otherwise wouldn't have played because they're trying to limit the schedule. So there's less ERC games during the Six Nations. You can make the argument that oh he, he was you know he was down in Ireland camp and he was coming back up anyway. But you know if you're playing for Ireland, then you're going to have breaks each side of the Six Nations so that you're not getting burnt out playing club and international. So you know if, if this season had gone ahead as if it was when the schedule was initially released, then he probably would have had maybe three or four weeks off during the Six Nations just to rest and relax, and you're getting those weeks back, whereas the way it was, there wasn't really a break for guys like him and Mike Lowry, uh, for Robert Balakun as well. You know, these guys just kept playing. So it's been a massive, massive amount. And whenever else to rely on them so much, they weren't even going to go down and play limited minutes. It was, they were coming down, they were playing big minutes and big games that Ulster needed to win. So it's good to see him back refreshed and ready to go for the, for the last few weeks of the season. Because I think that's probably what let, obviously English and French clubs will say that they don't have the opportunity to do this, but I do think this is what Leinster do better than anybody in rugby is make sure that they have their key guys who do play an awful lot of minutes, who do end up playing a lot for Ireland during the season, but make sure they're fresh for this time of the season. Like Leinster have it down to a fine art. I think Leo Cullen doesn't get anywhere near the credit he deserves. Obviously, look, they've got more better players, so they can do this. I think they've used 60 players this year. They have, Um, which is insane. But the idea that, you know, they are peaking in time to absolutely demolish the European champions in a semi-final to be able to hit that level of performance. It's something that I think all teams are going to aspire to once we get the schedule ironed out. It feels like obviously due to COVID and a few other issues every year we're having to get used to a new type of schedule. But once we get into a more settled pattern, I think there's going to be an awful lot more thought from teams with the disclaimer that not everybody has the same amount of players to try and ensure that teams are peaking at this time of year, because we've talked about it a lot of how Ulster and some other teams, it can feel like their season just sort of fizzles out at this time of year. One more negative thing that came out of the, the Ulster Sharks game, unfortunately, was the injury to Mike Lowry. He came off after a tackle on Afalele Fassi. And while there's been no official confirmation of what the injury was, I think we can all gather what it was based on the picture that he put up on Instagram earlier this week saying that he has a broken cheekbone. No prognosis yet, but unless he comes out wearing a cane mask or something like that, I've got a funny feeling that's probably going to be the end of his season. Prop Winger asks, if, as expected, Michael Lowry is out for the knockouts with the broken cheekbone, who's most likely to play 15? Is Moxham the next man off the shelf at 23, or does Madigan get a reprieve to add a bench 10 option? 
I would guess that Madigan probably comes onto the bench. Uh, Well, sorry, first of all, I'll say I I think Rob Little is probably the next man in at 15 based on the fact that he was the guy on the bench for the Sharks game. And that's where he went and played after Larry came off. But yes, I think Madigan probably comes onto the bench because you've now lost your your, uh, backup 10 on the pitch. So you need someone who's able to replace Billy Burns if needed. I know you could maybe put Nathan Doak there, but it's a lot to ask him to step in in a knockout game, given that he hasn't played there for Ulster yet. I, I would agree with all of that. Um, I think Rob Little, you know, we saw him play well in the 15 jersey and difficult games like away, away to uh, Dragons and stuff. And he, when fit, has got a, a bit of a run this season. So I think we'll see him come in at 15. It's almost forgotten about now because it was so long ago. But like, I suppose that means that Ulster have realistically lost their first three options at 15 over the course of this season with uh, Stockdale and Addison. So it's a real test of the depth that they have there. I would agree with you. I know they have sort of experimented with um, this idea of pushing uh, pushing Doug out to 10. I don't think you're going to leave yourself in a situation where, you know, potentially Billy Burns gets injured after a minute and a half and you've got somebody like Madigan out. The danger with Madigan is obviously that he hasn't played enough rugby up to this point. You know, we saw how difficult it was, um, say, in that Stormers game where he did just sort of come in for that one isolated start. It's very difficult to get when you don't get into a rhythm during the season because of injuries. It's very difficult, especially at a position like 10 when you're just when you're thrown in. And then the later in the season you get, the more of a balancing act it becomes for the coach because it's like, the games, the stakes just get higher and higher and higher and the players probably getting rustier and rustier and rustier. So um, it can it can be very tough. I'm sure it is very tough in terms of selection, but I just can't see themselves... I, I can't see them leaving the possibility of, say, Burns getting injured and you being... just don't have that cover at 10. The other option that we haven't discussed, actually, is Stuart Murr playing 15 again. But I would say after the previous Munster game... I think they might shelve that until next season. And I would be surprised if he started at 15 ahead of Little. It's the same as Mike Larry at 10. You know, you want to get these guys minutes in these positions, but it's like I say, when the stakes are this high, you know, you can't really make these selection calls that would be, I suppose, deemed an experimentation. Mm. Yeah, these are, these are the selection calls that if they come off during the regular season, you look like a genius. And if... You try them during the playoffs and they don't come off, then you, yeah. you end up looking just a little bit foolish and your season's over. So yeah, exactly. Exactly. not exactly the time to experiment. But we're getting the excuses in early here in case everything goes wrong for the for the quarterfinal. Speaking of excuses, uh, Stephen McCormick asks, what did our starting props have to do against the Sharks to get more than six, Adam? Um, I did want to answer this one. And all I'll say is it's very tough to do ratings from a, from the ground when you're doing a report uh, and a live blog all at the same time. It's very hard to spot little things that players are doing well. Uh, I can uh, I can only apologise for our three-man team becoming a two-man team, um, <laughs> which gave, gave everybody else an actual little bit of work. I don't, I don't like to miss games normally. I couldn't pick what day I had to move house, so... Yeah, the, the hierarchy sort of works that whenever Jonathan's off, Michael gets bumped up to... Uh, report duty and then I get bumped up to ratings on top of the live blog and whenever you don't have like ratings are really a thing that you need to do 
from home, if I'm being honest, because you can't spot everything whenever you're in the ground and you're trying to report, uh, you're trying to write a report as well, because at home you've got the benefit of replays, you've got the benefit of pausing the game and rewinding it and seeing who got that turnover, who got that. So there's there are things that you miss. And look, I have watched the game back and like the props did deserve more than a six and I'll hold my hands up to that. But uh, at the time, the props, props are probably the hardest ones to mark as well because the only things that you're 100% noticing them doing is holding up a scrum. And I, I don't know, is, is that worth bumping them up to a seven just for holding up a scrum for the entire game? I mean, against against that, uh, I'm, not, I'm not ever, I, sorry, I will never ever criticize anybody's ratings because they are the hardest thing to do. But you could make the argument if you wanted to that holding up against that scrum is worth it. I don't know. Fair enough. Yeah. Like I, I went back and funny enough, whenever I was watching it, I thought to myself, man, they're, they're scrummaging against, you know, Oxen Che and Thomas Dutois. It's uh, it's a pretty big scrum to be holding up. So uh, if uh, if Andy Warwick and Tom O'Toole are listening to this podcast, I do apologize, guys. You deserve better than sixes. But at the time, when it, whenever you're trying to focus on everything that uh, Nick Timoney and Stuart McCloskey are doing and uh, you're looking at some drop passes and thinking who dropped that and whatnot. It's very hard to try and focus on props as well, but that's the ratings. I'm not suggesting for a second that Tom Wichel does listen to this podcast, but if I had to pick one player in the squad who does not, it would 100% be Andy Work. I don't know. Like Whenever you're driving those big rigs, you got to have something to listen to and keep you occupied. So I like to think the character for Andy Work that I have cultivated in my mind is just, it's not a podcast guy, you know? Looking at some of the other uh, quarterfinals that have been set up in the URC based on the round 18 results, Leinster will take on Glasgow Warriors, the DHL Stormers will host Edinburgh, and the Vodacom Bulls will take on the Cell Sea Sharks, as well as Ulster facing Munster. Uh, Mark Murhead asks a very interesting question, and it's interesting because I've had this debate with several people over the weekend already. Any thoughts on Edinburgh getting rewarded with a home semi-final if they beat the Stormers despite finishing seventh, but Ulster are guaranteed to be away even though they finished third? Yeah, I do. And I get the sense that this isn't going to be overly popular, but I just think that with the fact that not everybody plays everybody the same amount of times, the fact that not or people play teams at different times during the season, especially this season when as we sort of alluded to earlier, the idea not to have games during the uh, international windows ended up having to sort of be shelled. I think that the regular season is so uneven in terms of its scheduling that I think that, and especially with the unevenness of the travel, and what I mean there is the fact that it's, I think we will see over the next number of years, so much more difficult to cross hemispheres and win, that there's a luck of the draw element in a way, and what I mean there in that sense is that Edinburgh, as an example, finished above Glasgow, but don't have to cross hemisphere. Now they do have to go and play Leinster in Dublin, which is no real reward, but you know what I mean. So there's so much potential for the playoff field to not feel quite right. And that's before you even get into the idea that Ulster should have actually finished second by beating the Stormers in Cape Town, but we'll probably have that discussion next week. 
don't bring that up, I, don't open that can of worms now. <laughs> yeah, that I think if you do go away and do something, you know, if as a seven seed you go away and knock out the second seed, then I think that's just reward. I'm gonna. Disagree. I understand what you're going to say that the regular season lasts however long it lasts nine months. So why would why would the previous nine months not be rewarded? But I think basically what I'm trying to get at is the playoffs are essentially a tournament in and of themselves, you know? So the regular season is there to qualify for the playoffs. Like I say, it's uneven scheduling anyway, uneven fixture lists. So why not put more emphasis on the knockout games? And I understand this will be unpopular because it obviously has the potential to negatively impact Ulster. Yeah, I don't think I need to say anything more because I think you've summed up my viewpoint as well as your own there. Like. <laughs> You've summed up pretty well that the URC is not a perfect competition in terms of scheduling. It's not like the Premiership where you play everyone home and away or the top 14 where you play everyone home and away. There is a real disparity in terms of the the fixture schedule, and I get that. But if you have grinded to get yourself to third in the table, because every, every team goes through different issues during the season, be it injuries, be it unavailabilities, be it this season, there's been COVID cancellations, obviously. So every team goes through some kind of adversity. If you've worked your way up to third in the table, there's nothing stopping Edinburgh from winning 18 out of 18 games and finishing first. Like that's, if they are good enough, they will win all their games. They will get top spot or, you know, winning. But if you get top spot, nobody can... uh... Nobody can supersede you then afterwards. Okay, you know? all right, all right. Let me let me re- <laughs> let me rephrase that. There's nothing stopping Edinburgh from finishing with a record Ulster had and finishing third. So I understand that it might be slightly tougher for them to do so, but if they're good enough, they will do it. If they're not good enough, then they will finish seventh, which they have, and they will go to second in the league, and they will and they have that disadvantage of playing away from home. For me, if you're going to reward teams for the regular season, it shouldn't just be in the quarterfinals. It should be throughout the playoffs. If you are like, if you don't have seeds one, two, three, and four going through from the quarterfinals in the semifinals, you reseed them and you do the semifinals that way. I think that's a more reasonable way to say this is your reward for where you finished in the league table. And this applies whether Ulster get through or not. If Ulster lose to Munster, then I think it should be reseeded. So Munster are seeded wherever they are. So Munster may end up being fourth seeds. They may end up being third seeds based on where, where they finish if they won. Whenever a regular season does last that long, I think to, to then punish Ulster or Munster or whoever for going through and then having to play away, even though they are technically the second seeds. I think that's a bit unfair for all the work you've done. The playoffs, sure, they are a mini tournament in themselves, and I completely understand that. But for a three-game tournament to start rewarding teams for not finishing in the top four or the the top six or or the top top two seeds going into the semifinals, I think is a a bit harsh. You can make the same argument that by this token, whoever wins or whoever finishes the top of the league should be the champion. How so? You know, it's all just varying degrees of rewarding winning games during the regular season. But we'll, we'll put it. We'll put it. Put it. Just saying that, but what I really mean is just let chaos reign. You know, have it be like boxing. Beat the champ. Become the champ. Like let's let's, let's inject a bit of madness into the season. Why not? 
So what you're saying is the entire URC season should just be all the other teams battling it out to get the honour of facing Leinster. And then yeah, if any much. team finally beats Leinster, everyone else is fighting out to get the chance to beat them. So whenever Ulster won in November, they would be the, the belt holders, essentially. Yeah, the uh, the pound for pound rankings champion. But then they went out to, and got beat by Ospreys then. So. I mean, let, let's be honest here. Like, the playoffs are a money-making scheme. It's The playoffs aren't a fair way to decide who is the best team because you can have one off day and you can be eliminated. Like Leinster are just as much at risk of being eliminated in the quarterfinals as any other team because if they have an off day, then they can be beaten. Now, their off day is better than a lot of other teams' off days, but they're just as statistically likely to have an off day as any of the other seven teams in the quarterfinals. Is anybody going to argue if Leinster lose in the quarterfinals that they are not the best team in the URC? Absolutely not. They've proven over the last nine months that they are the best team of the Celtic nations and the South African nations. Or the South What's African the teams. Pro four, sorry, why do I keep calling it the Pro 14? I? I don't know. That's, that suits the URC more than almost any other league, surely, because you do, or you are able to maintain interest because the worst thing that could ever happen to the pro for the ERC at the minute would be to go to a structure where the team that wins the league is the champion, because then you would end up basically having your own version of German football because nobody has the depth to compete with Leinster over the course of a season. But as you rightly point out, while nobody has done it in the past four years, there is this possibility that you get them on your best day during the during the knockouts and put them out. But as we all know, you have to be a very good team to have your best day, even be capable of knocking out Leinster on not a good day because certainly not 2020, but I would go back to 2019. Like that was very nearly as good a performance as Ulster could muster in that quarterfinal in Europe. And without, uh, without relitigating a match that happened three years ago, it still wasn't good enough to beat mm. them, you know? No, I, I completely agree. But in my mind, the, the fairest way to decide the best team in a league is by running it by, by a league schedule. I'm not trying to devalue the playoffs because the playoffs are where the where the league is won. You're not handing out trophies. Well, <laughs> I was going to say you're not handing out trophies. They are handing out trophies Everybody this year. Everybody got a for, trophy team last weekend. Yeah, Leinster got a trophy. The Stormers Shields got a trophy. Yeah, everyone's getting a shield. Uh, all sprays got a shield and threw a party that looked like they won the league they didn't even make the playoffs the playoffs are are not the best way to decide it I'll, I'll put on my giants hat for a second and say you know playoffs in hockey and basketball are a lot more fair a lot more fair let me try and say that more in journalistic language fairer because you have to win what is it, 16-odd games to win a trophy. It's not like you're coming in winning three games and that's you champions. You're having to you're having to do a bit of a slog to win a trophy. Whereas in the URC, and it's the same in the Premiership, and it's the same in the top 14, you win three games, you peak for three games, and you're champions. So it, it's not a perfect system. And even for me, the seedings isn't the perfect system either, but it is what it is. And nobody's going to argue if somebody else other than Leinster wins the playoffs and we will call them the rightful champions. But for me, I think 
if you're going to decide a league fairly like this, I think it's better just to do it as a as a league as it is. Also, in really boring logistical terms, would it minimize the amount of potential different locations where games could be? The way that, the way the so seedings like, are done now. Yes, so the way the seedings are being done now means that one of the semi-finals can be in, in Edinburgh or Cape Town, and the other semi-final can be in Leinster. Do you or know Glasgow. what I mean? Yeah. Or Glasgow. So. <laughs> you, did you specifically not say or Glasgow? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, so there are four places where the games could be. If you do it the other way, there are eight games where the semi-finals could be. And given the general chaos that's already being caused by this amount of travel, teams having to hold flights, not knowing if they're going to have to fly long haul at a day's notice, maybe it's just seen as best to limit the various different scenarios. I don't think that really matters because, well, for a start, you've only got six potential venues because the bottom two sides definitely can't host semi-finals because there's guaranteed to be two teams above them that will qualify for the semis. I'm glad you were so, able to check my mouse there because I was not <laughs> even sure if I, while I was saying it. So you're adding two more venues and we're not talking about teams that need to check availability with their with their stadiums or anything like that. They, they all own their own stadiums. They're all free. They all know they're going to be available to use. So it's... Well, we don't know what Ed Sheeran's doing next week, to be fair. <laughs> fair point. I actually see Bruce Springsteen's been announced as playing the RDS next May. So we'll have, to, we'll have to see what weekend in the fixture that falls as well. Why are you thinking about Ulster taking another knockout game down to Dublin? Well, it's in early May, so I'm get, and it's at a weekend, so I'm guessing it would potentially uh, rule Leinster out of playing at home that particular weekend. But one thing I am interested by is that after all the talk I'm not about playing the RDS, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm very interested by that. But uh, okay. I think I think my parents would more be interested by that than I would. I, I, I don't know whether that was like an intentional insult or whether it was just a drive by Adam, but. Uh... Just, just a wee drive-by. It, uh, it only occurred to me while I was saying it. But the, the, fact, the fact for these playoffs, we were talking about all the travel that would have to be done between hemispheres for the, for the knockout games. Only Edinburgh are actually going to be travelling to South Africa from the four quarterfinals. You know, the four quarterfinals are one between an Irish and a Scottish team, one between two Irish teams, one between two South African teams, and one South African Scottish game. So for all the worries about all the travel that was going to have to be done, there's only one team that's having to up sticks and move to the other side of the world for a game. Oh, yeah, it could barely have worked out any better from a logistical and I suppose environmental point of view that you have Ulster and Munster playing each other. So that's the least amount of travel that you could have. Glasgow Leinster is short haul, obviously, than the two South African teams playing playing each other so and obviously I suppose the overarching point of all this is that I think the Stormers are going to beat Edinburgh so I'm guessing while a fun hypothetical discussion um, it'll actually be a moot point after uh, after next Saturday. Yeah well, I was going to ask you for your early predictions because I, I assume we're going to revisit this again next week but uh, give, me, give me your final four. I think that the Sharks will be the away team to win. Funny, I, I was going to say the same thing. And that the home teams will win the other games. 
Yeah, can't see Edinburgh traveling all that way and beating the Stormers. Leinster are just going to beat Glasgow. The only thing I will say for Glasgow is they might catch Leinster on the hop coming off the Champions Cup final. But that's about all I can see in that game if yeah, Glasgow are going to cause a shock. You know, we did see the sort of peaks and troughs of this, not so much recently, but in uh, the last, well, we're maybe going back two iterations of Leinster teams, I suppose, that sort of 2011-12 Heineken Cup uh, winning teams that ultimately lost leagues. I, You know, that Leinster team lost three finals in a row. Essentially, you would think, given that they were crowned the best team in Europe and the Heineken Cup and Champions Cup has a real habit of, unlike other knockout competitions, making sure somehow that the best team wins. Usually, I think that's fair to say. There haven't been too many upsets, really, in terms of European winners. Mm. But the ERC, Pro 14, Pro 12, Celtic League ended up with a fair amount more randomness to it for a while there because of essentially Leinster being caught cold in important knockout games post-Europe. All those games are going to be not this weekend coming, but next weekend coming. Ulster will kick it off on Friday, June 3rd at 7.35pm at Ravenhill. And then all the other games, Leinster, Glasgow, Stormers, Edinburgh and Bulls, Sharks are all on the Saturday. We don't have an Ulster game to look forward to this weekend, but we do have two games to look forward to this weekend. It's the European finals weekend in Marseille. Uh, Leinster take on La Rochelle in the Heineken Champions Cup final. But first of all, the Challenge Cup final is on Friday night between Lyon and Toulon. All French affair. Toulon don't have very far to travel to get to the Stade Velodrome. I don't know about you, Johnny. I don't really have much interest in this Challenge Cup final apart from essentially seeing which side we'd like to see in the Champions Cup next season and therefore their potential opponents for Ulster. Yeah, pretty much. Like I know we all tried to lie to ourselves last year and Say the Challenge Cup was exciting, but it's it's not particularly. It's exciting um, when you're in it. Like you care about it when you're in it. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's true. That's about the extent of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All those years in the in the Heineken Cup when the second or the third, fourth, fifth best uh, runners up in the in the post stages dropped into the Challenge Cup, and you're secretly thinking, "Please don't let that be us. Please don't let that be us." I mean, obviously, you know, it happened Leinster and Leinster, Leinster won the Challenge Cup that way. But Yeah, but who, re- um, who really remembers that year, right? Again, you know, we're getting down a hypothetical aside, but I just don't really believe that second-tier competitions actually work in a sport that is as closed as rugby. As you can see the value to an extent in football because so many different teams get to play and experience it. But um, See, this is, such a, this is such a Spurs mentality where you have to try and defend second-tier competitions. I don't know if you uh, followed the football over the weekend, Adam, but I will be making no defence of the Europa League next season. It's all Champions League. Yeah, because it's very hard to shake off the uh, reality that every team would rather be in a higher competition, whereas in sports that are more spread out, uh, not everybody gets to experience the, the top-level competitions. Not everybody can be as successful as Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. I was going to say a fair point until he mentioned Spurs. But I mean, <laughs> who who doesn't love a good trip to either the wildlands of Russia in the freezing snow to take on Krasnodar or maybe a nice trip to Romania to face Timisoara Saracens or teams like that, you know? Only only teams you can face in the Challenge Cup. 
Well, I suppose to sound very spoiled, we've both been going on all stairway trips for enough years now that we're getting an awful lot of repeats. It's going to be hard for us to get new teams to go and visit next year. So I suppose the Challenge Cup would have offered that under a normal circumstances. Yeah, I, I, I don't really mind which one of the Leon or Toulon win to try and get back to the final because I haven't been to either. Probably Toulon more than Leon because it's situated slightly nicer beside a beach and in slightly warmer conditions. I think, that, I mean, not that Toulon had any great history before that brilliant Hennigan Cup winning team, but I suppose in general, it feels like they've been resurgent this year to a degree and it would be uh, good to see you, you want as many of the sort of superpowers firing on all cylinders as they can be, as it were. So adds a bit of glamour back to proceedings. So I suppose we'll give a little bit more precedence then to the Champions Cup final. Leinster taking on La Rochelle on Saturday. Really intriguingly poised tie for me. You've got obviously Leinster trying to win their fifth. You've got Ronan O'Gara's La Rochelle looking to avenge last year's defeat. Leinster trying to avenge last year's semi-final defeat to La Rochelle. So there's lots of different sort of subplots coming into this. And obviously, Munster people will be watching on, very interested for obvious reasons. But so much intrigue behind just one game. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of great storylines. Lots of uh, lots of great, to use that journalistic term once again, lots of great narrative around the game. Will Skelton uh, making his Lazarus-like reappearance last week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, like, Rogers came out this week and said that Kerr Barlow and uh, both Victor Vito were doubts. But I mean, how can we trust him if Will Skelton was out for the season and then missed a week? Both are um, starting. Like, we're calling it now. Both are starting this yeah, game. Yeah. The only thing that I will say is that two weeks ago, I said that no matter what way or no matter who wins, I felt like the winner of the competition was coming out of the Leinster to lose semi final. And that Leinster performance was so good, so comprehensive. And you know, you can fall into the trap of deeming things historic or classic in the moment and not giving them time to breathe. But like that performance was one of the all-time great Irish performances in European rugby. And I'm not saying that they'll get to that level again, but I think if Leinster get close to that level, I could see them winning by 10 points. I think secretly we're all hoping it's a whitewash and it might replace the 2012 final as the biggest winning margin. <laughs> Just so Ulster don't have that unwelcome bit of history uh, as part of I, their... I didn't think about Ulster's place in, the, in those record books. Like, I think La Rochelle are a good side, but you can see, obviously, the top 14's crazy competitive this year, but you can see domestically that they haven't been at the level of consistency, I suppose, that... Leinster, again, it's difficult. You're comparing apples and oranges somewhat to comparing the leagues. But um, I think I think Ronan O'Gara is doing a great job. I think they've got some great players, but I don't think they're, uh, as I say, if Leinster get to anything like the heights that they hit, obviously we've previously discussed they're going to they have an off day like an NBA can, but if they get to the heights that they hit in that semi-final, I think it'll be fairly comfortable. Try not to nail your colours to the mask too much there, Johnny. We're trying to make this slightly interesting for the people at home. Well, I wrote like a 1200 word column yesterday on how Leinster just the model for uh, everything basically so yeah I found it really interesting that Victor Vito like actually admitted publicly that he yeah. called on yeah. Stuart Lancaster and been like so uh, what are you doing that we should be doing that will actually make us better like I thought that kind of thing as much as it makes sense for him to do that oh 100% yeah I didn't and think I, I didn't think he would actually of- admit that he's calling 
a coach from a rival team to yeah. ask, what can we do that you're doing? We're essentially just trying to copy you. And I think it plays into an interesting narrative that we've had this season of, you know, even to hear Ugo Mola talk about looking at Leinster as well, looking at Leinster's style of play. And we're talking about Toulouse, the team that I think probably, if you think about European rugby, is one that you think has the most defined both sense of sense of self and style of play, possibly in European rugby, to say that they're looking at Leinster. It just it almost makes me think that we are taking their brilliance for granted in a way because we're just like oh well look at all the inherent inbuilt advantages they have with their school system and central contract so on and so forth but when you hear about some of the best really the best teams in the world looking to see how they can improve by copying Leinster it is a really interesting thing and the thing that this season more than any other season I think makes it especially noteworthy is just how much better some Leinster players are getting within that system. Like you talk about Jameson Gibson Park, the leap that he has made this season in terms of his international standing. And it really is standing in the world. Like, you know, you saw, obviously it was very All Blacks to comment on a a Kiwi to watch, as it were, before the Ireland uh, New Zealand game. But the fact that he was being picked out in New Zealand as one of Ireland's key players for the summer tour, that sort of thing. Even you look at somebody, you know, James Lowe has taken his game to a new level after a couple of years in that Leinster system. And the other person I mentioned in the column was Ross Maloney. He's now somebody who he might find it tough to get a cap given how many younger locks are coming behind. I've been really impressed with some of the second row play that we've seen throughout Ireland this year. But like, you know, somebody like Ross Maloney, the way that he played in that Toulouse game, being, I suppose, it's fair to say, the player of the least profile, possibly in the game, but certainly in the Leinster team. And just the way that he's got better and better and better through the standards that are driven by Leinster and what they're doing. It's all these things that feed into this idea that just mean I would be surprised if uh, if La Rochelle can, can shock them, as it were. Well, I have a real soft spot for La Rochelle after we we travelled there. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plump for them with absolutely no confidence that they're going to win this game. But... <laughs> Uh, I, d- I do very much like La Rochelle as a team, just just to be different, you know, just so just so we have a kind of differential point to bring up next week. But yes, Leinster v La Rochelle Saturday at four forty-five PM kickoff, and that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you very much for joining me, Jonathan. No problem. Good to be back. It is very good to have you back, and thank you very much to all of you for listening at home wherever you watch your rugby this weekend. Stay safe, and we'll see you soon.